All right, well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I do hope you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, as Rich just mentioned, we're going to continue on in our series through the book of 2 Kings this morning. Um, but before we look at our passage today, I want to first start by opening up with a word of prayer and uh, pray for our time together this morning as we uh, come around the Word of God. But also, uh, I know that for many of you, uh, this next week is back to school week. And so I want to pray for our teachers, for our students, and for our parents, because I know uh, that maybe perhaps for some of you, that's a really exciting thought, and maybe for others of you, that's overwhelming. And so wherever you're at this morning, I just want to pray uh, for our time this morning, but also for uh, back to school. So join with me now. Father, we do dedicate this morning to you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence. And we ask that he would illuminate the scriptures, that he would give us soft hearts this morning, that King Jesus would be glorified and magnified. And Father, we uh, just pray that we would leave here differently than when we came in. And we realize that's a work of your spirit through the scriptures. And Father, I do want to pray now for the parents and all of our school teachers, Lord, and for those who homeschool and for uh, our, the students, Lord, that, that as we move into back to school, Lord, that just there would be peace in our homes. I know this time period can be chaotic, it can be overwhelming, but we pray that uh, this year would be different and be marked by a measure of peace and confidence that, uh, that you uh, will see us through this next year. And so, Father, we just, again, we commit uh, this next year to you as teachers, as students, that it would be a year of uh, good education, but also uh, a year where, uh, where families can just be united and on the same page. And so we dedicate that to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, on May 11th, 1960, about 15 years or so after the end of World War II, a man got off his bus near his home in San Fernando, Argentina at about 8 p.m. at night after working a very long day at his job. And as he was walking up the road from the bus stop back towards his house, all of a sudden he was grabbed by a couple of men who had been pretending to work on a broken down car. They grabbed him, threw him into the back of the car and raced off towards a safe house. Now the man they grabbed said his name was Ricardo Clement, but the men who captured him knew his real name and his real identity, which was not Ricardo Clement, but was rather Adolf Eichmann. Now, I don't know how familiar most of you are with this story or even with the name Adolf Eichmann, but just in case you're not, uh, Eichmann was an infamous Nazi SS officer who by all accounts was the one man responsible for coming up with the plan to exterminate millions of Jewish men, women, and children what the Nazis referred to as the final solution to the Jewish question. Now, after World War II, Eichmann was captured by U.S. soldiers, but in 1946, he managed to escape a prison camp and thus avoiding the Nuremberg war trials. And so for four years, he made his way under an assumed identity between Europe and the Middle East before eventually, in 1950, making his way to Argentina. Soon after that, his family joined him there, and as I said earlier, he went by the name Ricardo Clement. And for 10 years, Eichmann went about his daily life seemingly escaping the consequences of his horrendous crimes against the Jewish people. However, as I just shared with you, on May 11th, 1960, again, 15 years after the war, Eichmann's day of reckoning had finally come. The men who captured him were a part of a much larger team of Mossad agents, which is Israel's intelligence agency, and they'd been tracking Eichmann for many, many years, and on that day in May, they finally had their man. Now, it's a fascinating story and one that I don't really have time to get into, but long story short, these Mossad agents very cleverly get Eichmann flown from Argentina to Israel, where he would eventually stand trial about a year later. And at that trial, Eichmann would be found guilty of 15 different charges, including uh, crimes against humanity, crimes against the Jewish people, and war crimes. About a year or so after the trial, Eichmann was hanged on May 31st, 1962. His body was cremated, and then his ashes were spread over the Mediterranean Sea. 
And one article I read this week which talked about it concluded the article by saying this, finally a persecutor of the Jewish people had been forced to stand trial and had been condemned by a Jewish court, a court of the state of Israel. After many centuries, those who had freely humiliated, ostracized, deported, expelled, and murdered Jews would be answerable for their crimes. Again, Eichmann's day of reckoning had finally come. And I'm sure that there must have been many moments throughout those 10 to 15 years after the war where Eichmann must have felt like he had successfully gotten away with it that people had forgotten the evil that he had committed, that they had moved on. Yet, as we just saw, in the end, he was held accountable for his actions. Now, in our story uh, today in 2 Kings, what we're going to see is another day of reckoning, and this time it's with the house of Ahab. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up now to 2 Kings chapter 8. Um, it's found on page 314 in our chair Bible. And I would encourage you to grab one because we're going to look at a lot of verses, so many so that uh, I didn't want to ruin Tyler Southard's weekend who does PowerPoint for us. And so I didn't give him all of them. So you'll need to look at a Bible if you want to follow. Now, I know last week Chris just focused on chapter 5 with the story of Naaman. But as he said last week, a few years ago in our series, Hope Through History, he covered chapters 6 and 7 in detail. And so if you're curious about those chapters, you can go back and listen to those messages on our website. But for today, we're going to focus on chapters 8 through 10. And so I don't really have an outline per se this morning other than walking us through these three chapters. But then at the end, I want to pull out for us some lessons that they teach us about the Lord. Now, before we jump in, there's a couple of qualifiers I need to make and also some background to the story that I need to give. And so in terms of some qualifiers, one thing I just want to give you a heads up on is that this section of Second Kings is super confusing. And the two things that make it confusing are, number one, the names in the story, and number two, it's confusing because uh, it's hard to know at times if certain actions are good and righteous or if they are bad and sinful. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that should be obvious, but as you'll see as we get into it, that's not always the case. The other thing you should probably know is that these chapters are also extremely bloody and violent. I mean, they even have kind of a mafia movie sense about them. So think, think something like The Godfather or The Untouchables, which hopefully you've never seen those movies, but just in case, think of something like that. So there's going to be lots of bloodshed, lots of murder, and again, it's not always clear what Yahweh permits or even endorses as a means of His righteous judgment versus what an individual does out of their own sinful motives and heart, which would not obviously be endorsed and condoned by Yahweh. And so again, just a heads up, these chapters are a little bit tricky. Now, in terms of the confusing names, let's, let me just try to explain it here so we can all go into this on the same page. Now, so far in 2 Kings, we have been focused primarily on Israel in the north. Now, Judah, the southern kingdom, hasn't really been mentioned or focused on since all the way back in 1 Kings. And during this long section where we've been focused on Israel, we have been introduced to King Ahaziah, who is then followed by King Jehoram, or his shortened name, Joram. Well, about halfway through chapter 8, without any explanation or warning, the story switches to Judah, where we are introduced to a different king named Jehoram, or Joram, who is then followed by a different king named Ahaziah. So again, two different sets of kings in two different countries, but the same names. Again, uh, uh, in Israel, Ahaziah followed by Jehoram, and Judah, Jehoram followed by Ahaziah. And then if that weren't enough, there's two different Jehoshaphats. I, I was so confused this week, I had to call Cory Bacher like, please help me understand what's going on here. And so there's two Jehoshaphats, one who's a godly king in Judah, but who's dead at this point, and another Jehoshaphat who is the father of a guy we are soon to be introduced to named Jehu. Confused yet? I, I certainly was. My brain literally hurt this week after studying these chapters. I probably should have planned a vacation after this message, but this is where we're at. All right, the, uh, the other thing, I just want to give some quick background. One thing that might be helpful to know is that in Deuteronomy 28, Right before the children of Israel enter the promised land with Joshua, Moses delivers the terms of the covenant to the people. 
And what we see there is that there are these promises of blessing and protection for obedience to the Mosaic law. But conversely, there are also promises of curses and devastation for disobedience to the law. And when you read through that section, it talks, as it talks about their disobedience, one of the main sins it mentions is the sin of idolatry, or in other words, the worshiping other gods. And some of the curses that are mentioned that will happen to the nation of Israel if they do this stuff is famine, unchecked violence, uh, war, ill health, and eventually exile to another nation. Now, as we've been going through 2 Kings, we have begun to see some of those consequences start to take place. Now, another piece of this, which also provides some needed background, is that all the way back in 1 Kings 19, while Elijah is running from Jezebel, remember he had that big victory at Mount Carmel, but then he gets scared because Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And so he runs away. And so he's hiding. And, and while he's hiding, God comes to him in a still small voice. And here's what the Lord tells him. He tells him to do three things. Number one, he tells him to anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Number two, to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. And finally, number three, to select Elisha as his successor. And the reason uh, the Lord gives Elijah this assignment is spelled out for us in 1 Kings 19.17, which says, And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, as you continue to read uh, on from there, what you find out is that Elijah only does one of those three things, and that is he picks Elisha to replace him. But after he recruits Elisha, Elijah basically quits on God. He gives up on his prophetic assignment. And so because of that, God takes him, as we see in chapter 2. Now, there's one other section that we should be aware of, and that is 1 Kings 21. Now, just in case, uh, if you forgot, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are some of the worst, most evil characters and leaders in the Old Testament. And the thing that made them so evil is that they introduced Baal worship into the nation of Israel. And they committed not only that, but they also committed all kinds of violent, heinous acts against the people of God. And in 1 Kings 21, after they unjustly murder a man named Naboth in order to uh, steal his land because he refused to sell it to them, but he, they still wanted it. Uh, in 1 Kings 21, Elijah confronts Ahab and he tells him that because of this and because of the other sins, God is going to thoroughly judge Ahab, his wife Jezebel, and all of their male descendants. Now, surprisingly, if you keep reading, Ahab kind of repents. And because of that, the Lord tells him, I will not bring this disaster in your day, but in your son's day. And yet that hasn't happened yet. So with all of that as background, let's look now at 2 Kings 8, starting in verse 1. Are you guys with me? That was a lot in an intro, but hopefully you're tracking. All right, 2 Kings 8, starting in verse 1. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, this is the Shunammite woman from chapter 4, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come about in the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. This king being talked about is King Jehoram, king of Israel. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, who you learned about last week. He's not a superstellar guy, saying, tell me all the great things that Elijah has done. And while he was telling the king how Elijah had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elijah restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land until now. 
Okay, so this opening story is quite a story. The Shunammite woman is warned by Elisha about an uh, upcoming severe famine in the land. And so she takes off and leaves Israel and goes and lives in a different country for a while. But then when she returns, someone has started squatting on her land and in her house. And so she immediately goes to the king of Israel to appeal her case. And as she walks in the room, Gehazi, Elijah's servant, is in the midst of telling the king about the time Elisha raised this woman's son from the dead. I mean, what an incredible coincidence, right? I mean, it's like, it's like perfect timing. It's almost like God's sovereign or something, you know? I mean, this story, it a little bit reminds me of the time about uh, five or six years ago when my life group was going through Sam Storm's little book on spiritual gifts. And that particular Sunday night, we were discussing the topic of healing. And we were kind of going back and forth about whether or not God still heals today and what that means for us and what that looks like. When all of a sudden, the front doors of the church open and this guy from a different country walks in and he says, do you guys have a prayer room where you pray for people to receive healing? Because I have a big surgery coming up next week. And we all turn to each other like, are you kidding me? I can't believe this guy just walked in in this moment during this exact discussion. Again, coincidence, right? And really, as we think about this story, I think as we just see what's going on here, with the Shunammite woman, what I think we see or what we have is an Old Testament example of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 10, 40, when he says this, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. As Corey Bacher pointed out a couple weeks ago, this woman went out of her way to show Elisha hospitality by building onto an addition onto her house for him. And in doing so, she demonstrated the faith and the trust that she had in the Lord. And now, here we are years later, and Yahweh has not forgotten her, nor has he forgotten what she did for his prophet. In other words, friends, God doesn't miss cold cups of water. He sees them all, and he honors them all, either in this life, but certainly in the next. And so that's the first story that we come across here in chapter 8. Let's keep going, though, and pick up the story in verse 7. And here's where the story shifts a little bit, and we see Elisha begin to take care of some unfinished business. Verse 7. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Haziel, take a present with you and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that you, that he shall sh certainly recover die. Okay, so first off, what, in, what we see here is that Elisha is headed north from Israel into Syria, and it just so happens that the king of, Sy uh, that the king of Syria, a guy by the name of Ben-Hadad, is super sick. And so Ben-Hadad gets uh, word that Elisha, this man of God, has come to Damascus, and so he sends one of his men out to meet him. Now, he just happens to send this guy named Haziel, another coincidence, and so Haziel comes on behalf of King Ben-Hadad, and he has all of these gifts for Elisha, and he asks Elisha, will the king recover from the sickness? And then Elijah says back to him this very confusing line, and he says, yes, he will recover, but no, he will die. And with that, you're like, what in the world is going on? That makes no sense, Elisha. What are you talking about? How can someone recover but still die? Well, let's keep reading verse 11. And he fixed his gaze and he stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses 
and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, what is your servant who is but a, but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elijah say to you? And he answered, he told me that you will certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died and Haziel became king in his place. Now there's some debate among scholars as to whether the he in verse 11 is talking about Elisha or Haziel. But it seems to me after studying it that it's most likely referring to Elisha. And the, the kind of picture you get here, the scene you get, is that Elisha has just told Haziel the news that the king will recover from his sickness, but even still that he will die. And as he's telling him this, it's, it's as if God begins to give Elisha a vision of all the evil and all the violence that Haziel will commit against the people of Israel. And so he's staring at him and he's seeing this vision. And as he does, he begins to weep uncontrollably. You see, here's the thing. This moment, in many ways, marks a turning point in the ministry of Elisha. By and large, up until this moment, Elisha's ministry has been marked by miraculous moments of divine grace. But now it's shifting into a ministry of divine judgment. And yet, even as it shifts into a season of judgment, we learn something from his weeping about the character and nature of God. You see, because Yahweh is, uh, is a God committed to justice, that also means he is a God who must administer judgment on those who do wrong. However, though, that doesn't mean that he isn't sad in doing so. In fact, we even see that displayed in the life of Jesus when he weeps over Jerusalem in Luke 19. In fact, one author put it like this. In Elisha's attitude in verses 11 to 12, we see Yahweh's attitude and Jesus's attitude. Yahweh is just and righteous and so will and must judge an apostate people, but he is so slow to anger and full of mercy that there is an element of divine sadness in his judgment. Now, getting back to Elisha's confusing statement about you will recover, but will certainly die, what we see here in verses 14 to 15 is what Elisha was talking about. He's essentially saying, yes, Ben-Hadad would recover from his sickness because this sickness wasn't unto death, but no, he will not live because of Haziel's actions in suffocating him. And so this section closes, and what we see is that Elijah may have dropped the ball in anointing Haziel king of Syria, but Yahweh hasn't forgotten, nor has he changed his plans. Haziel is now king, and as we will see, that is bad news for the people of Israel. And the reason that's bad news is because Haziel will be used by God as an instrument of judgment on his people. And so fast forwarding a little bit, in verses 16 to 24, the scene shifts from Israel to Judah, which as I said before, happens without much notice. And what we see here is that Jehoshaphat dies, and his son Jehoram begins to reign. Now, now, again, as I've already told you, there are two Jehorams, and they both sometimes go by a shortened name, Joram, which would be something like, my name is technically Nicholas, but I often go by Nick. So both of these men rule their respective countries, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, at around the same time. However, not only do they share a name, we also learn in this section that they are related to each other. In fact, they are brother-in-laws. Because, very stupidly, Jehoshaphat created a marriage alliance between his family of Judah and Ahab's family in Israel. Jehoram, Jehoshaphat's son, married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, who, as you'll see in a little bit, is a real piece of work. And, uh, in fact, is probably the only woman who could rival her mom Jezebel as the winner for the worst female in the Old Testament. And with that, one lesson that you and I learn here is that bad decisions, and even specifically, a bad choice of a spouse has severe consequences. You see, even though Jehoshaphat was a godly king by and large, he seemed to lack just basic common sense. As one commentator said, Jehoshaphat was long on piety, but short on common sense. 
In other words, yes, he, he trusted Yahweh consistently, but he also trusted people foolishly, terrible people foolishly. Yes, he had childlike faith in God, but he also lacked discernment in certain areas of his life. And this is certainly one of those. And so again, what we see here is that the royal lines between the two families, the two nations are now mixed. And unfortunately for Judah, that not only will affect the morality of her next couple of kings, but it will also bring about tragedy and even judgment on their nation. You see, at the end of this section in verse 24, we find out that King Joram of Judah dies and he is succeeded by his son uh, named Ahaziah. And in verse 27 of chapter eight, we are told this. Ahaziah followed the evil example of King Ahab's family. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Ahab's family had done, for he was related by marriage to the family of Ahab. Well, after that, the next verse, verse 28, tells us that Ahaziah went to Jezreel in order to go visit his sick and wounded relative, King Joram, king of Israel, who just got hurt in a battle with Haziel, who we just were introduced to this newly appointed king of Syria. And so what that means and what the whole point of telling you that is, is that where this leaves us is that the king of Israel, Joram, and the king of Judah, Ahaziah, are together in the same city at the same time in the same place, which is an important detail based on what happens next. Chapter nine, verse one. Then Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive there, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him arise among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. Okay, so the scene shifts back to Elisha, and what we see is here is that he still has one more box to tick off of Elijah's to-do list from 1 Kings 19, and that is to anoint Jehu as king of Israel. And so starting in verse 1, he calls one of the junior or JV prophets over to him, and he gives him a flask of oil, and he tells him to go find Jehu and anoint him as king of Israel. Now, we don't know why Elisha is delegating this task rather than doing it himself. Some think that Elisha is being disobedient here by passing the responsibility on to a younger, more immature prophet. Others, however, think that he's perfectly within his rights to delegate this kind of a task. But either way, this is what happens. Let's keep going. Look at verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which of us all? And he said, to you, O commander. So he arose and he went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled." Did you notice anything about what the junior prophet said compared to what Elijah told him, Elijah told him to say? Elisha gives him one sentence, and yet here he delivers to Jehu a whole paragraph with a lot of additional detail. Now, again, this is one of those things that scholars debate. Some think that the junior prophet went rogue and just added not only his own uh, words, but his own interpretation of those words. Others, again, however, think that uh, the one sentence that we read from Elisha in verse 3 is just a summary of what the junior prophet was supposed to say to Jehu. And here in verses 6 to 10, we get the full version, which does happen sometimes in the Old Testament. Now, personally, i got to be honest. I, I don't know which view or which interpretation is right. I think a compelling case can be made for both. But either way, what we see coming out of this is that Jehu, this military commander, is anointed by God to be the next king over Israel. 
Now the problem is, is that there's still a current king of Israel, but let's keep reading. Verse 11, when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did that mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, ah, you know, the, the fellow and his talk, which that must be like Old Testament speak for like, yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> and uh, he said to him, and they said to him, that's not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So again, after the prophet leaves, Jehu comes back to his buddies and they're like, what did that crazy guy want with you? And he's like, nah, he's just trying to play it off. Like, oh, nothing. And yet his friends keep pressing him like, yeah, right, dude, you're dripping oil everywhere. Clearly something took place. Like, oh, no, what, you mean this? There's nothing. So finally, Jehu tells him the king has been, uh, that he's been anointed as king over Israel. And immediately the men kind of take that news to heart and they take off their garments and they lay them on the ground for Jehu to step on and then they proclaim him as king. Hmm, that sounds kind of familiar. That sounds like maybe something we see in the New Testament later on. Well, next, in verses 14 to 16, the narrator reminds us that the king of Israel and the king of Judah are both together in Jezreel. Remember, he went to go visit this wounded uh, king. And then it tells us that Jehu mounts his chariot and begins to head in that direction. And so in verses 17 to 20, we get this really interesting scene where uh, a watchman of, of the city of Jezreel spots this chariot racing madly towards the city. And so he's like, uh, hey, king, um, there's somebody coming, and Jehoram's like, okay, well, let's, let's send somebody out there to check it out. And so this guy rides out to Jehu and says to him, the king wants to know if you're coming in peace. And Jehu responds real roughly like, what do you know about peace? Get behind me. And so that dude falls in line, and he begins riding with Jehu towards the city. And so the watchman's seeing all this, and he's like, he's really confused. He's like, um, king, that, that guy you sent, he's not coming back. And so what should we do? And so the king's like, well, send another one. And so he sends another man, and the exact same thing happens to him. He, too, falls in line behind Jehu. So again, the watchman says to the king, but then he adds, you know what, actually, the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives ferociously. <laughs> so he had a reputation. Um, now, clearly, Joram would have known uh, Jehu because he was of, uh, he's one of his military commanders. And so picking it back up in verse 21, it says this. Joram said, make ready, and they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each and his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Hmm, another coincidence in the story. And when Jehoram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahazi, treachery, O Ahazi. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Now Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, and he fled in the direction of ben Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is in Eblom. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. Wow, what a scene. So the king of Israel and the king of Judah are now both dead. I mean, this is the point in the mafia story where things get, uh, they really start to get violent. You're like, all right, who, well, who's next, right? Because I know we're not done yet. And really this section is a little complicated and tricky because we're left with a little bit of this question of why did Jehu kill the king of Judah? Was it because he was a bloodthirsty guy who just took things into his own hands? And poor Ahaziah was just a victim of wrong place at the wrong time? 
Or was Jehu just simply following the junior prophet's instructions about killing every male in the house of Ahab? Since, as I told you earlier, because of his mother, Ahaziah was a part of the house of Ahab and part of that bloodline. Again, at this point, perhaps we're not totally sure. But let's keep going because, again, Jehu's not done. Look at verse 30. Then Jehu came to Jezreel, and Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zemurai murderer of your master? And he looked, and he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. And then he went in, and he ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Sorry, children, I should have warned you here. Uh, When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elisha, the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Okay, so after dealing with the two kings, Jehu now turns his attention to Jezebel. She somehow gets tipped off about her son's death. And so she puts on some makeup, she does her hair, and then she just sits by the window and waits. Now again, this is one of those weird points that scholars like to debate. Um, Some think that she's dolling herself up in order to try to seduce Jehu and thereby saving herself. Whereas others are like, no, she's not trying to seduce him. Rather, this is one last act of defiance where she gets herself dressed up, she puts on some makeup in order to go out in style. And personally, I think that second interpretation makes the most sense. I mean, if she's trying to seduce him, she goes about it in a really weird way. Since she sarcastically asked Jehu if he's come in peace, which clearly he is not. But then not only that, she also insults him by calling him Zimri, who was a different usurper to the royal throne back in 1 Kings 16. You see, it seems to me that Jezebel is the kind of person who goes down to her grave shaking her fist at God. In other words, she seems to display no remorse, nor does she display any fear in the face of death. You see, as Christians, we like to say things like, there's no atheist in foxholes. But the reality is, that's not always true. In fact, I mentioned in the intro this story about Adolf Eichmann, and as he was going to the gallows to be hanged, he told a Protestant missionary this. He said, I'm taking it calmly, with peace in my heart, which is to me proof that I was correct. I mean, how twisted and how sick is that? He went to the gallows feeling calm, which he then interpreted as, well, that must mean those horrible, evil actions I did were right. And it's not just someone like Eichmann. In fact, I even read an article uh, this week from The Guardian, which talked about the famous new atheist Christopher Hitchens. And the name of the article was this, deathbed conversion, never. Christopher Hitchens was defiant till the last. And so again, there are people whose hearts are so hard, whose conscience are so seared that even in the face of death, they go to their grave shaking their fist at God. However, though, on this point, I agree with commentator Dale Ralph Davis when he writes this, one's boldness in the face of death does not exempt from judgment after death. Someone may put on a memorable piece of drama at death and still be damned. And so not only does this section fulfill the prophecies and predictions made by Elisha back in 1 Kings 21, 23, that being that Jezebel would die and that the dogs would eat her, but as Corey Bacher points out, the fact that all that is left of her is her hands, feet, and skull is a bit ironic since Jezebel was the one responsible for introducing Baal worship in Israel, and one of the main goddesses of Baal is Anath, who Jezebel herself represented. And the thing about Anath is that she was the goddess of love and war, and she was known for splattering the blood of her victims everywhere, and also for taking their heads, feet, and hands as trophies. And yet, here's Jezebel being dealt with in the exact same way. 
Now, to be clear, if you look at what Elijah says in 1 Kings 21 and compare it to what Jehu says, he does add some stuff, which again, as, as a commentator points out, we must consider that Jehu may not have picked up the Bible Memory Award in Sunday school <laughs> and that he may be tweaking the prophecy for political mileage. But it could well be 1 Kings 21, 23 reports Elijah's anti-Jezebel prophecy only in summary and that he may actually have said more, which Jehu remembers here. Now, again, which one of those scenarios is right? I'm not totally sure. But as you will see here in a minute, there's enough suspicion around Jehu to question whether or not he's as righteous as he thinks he is based not only on this, but on many other things as well. All right, we're going to have to hustle if we're going to make it through chapter 10. Um, let me do some summarizing. Basically, the next thing that happens is that Jehu now goes after Ahab's 70 sons. And so starting in chapter 10, he goes to Samaria where these 70 sons are being trained, or he writes a letter uh, to uh, these guardians of the city who are training the 70 sons who are to one day be king. And so Jehu writes them a letter where he basically tells them, hey, pick the best and greatest of Ahab's son, sons and make that person king. And the rulers had already heard what Jehu had done to the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And so they respond to Jehu by saying, look, man, we're your servants. And so just tell us what to do. And so Jehu writes back and he says, all right, if that's the case, then prove it by slaughtering the king's 70 sons and bring me their heads in a basket at Jezreel tomorrow. So the next day, Jehu's butler comes in and he says to him, sir, your heads have arrived. What would you like done with them? And Jehu tells him to have the head stacked up outside the city gate, which is an ungodly pagan practice that the Syrians did, which is not good. But then if that weren't enough, Jehu then comes out to address the people and he immediately admits that he's the one who killed Joram, king of Israel. But then he throws the rulers of the city under the bus by saying, yeah, you know, I, I killed one guy, I admit it, but who killed all these 70 people? Because it wasn't me. And so, you know, he's being deceptive here. Now, to be honest, this is the point where Jehu really becomes unhinged, right? Like, this is where he, like, loses his mind. I mean, don't get me wrong. He has already done some shady stuff and some questionable things, but, but things are about to get a whole lot worse in the next section. In fact, right after this, we're told in verse 11 that Jehu kills basically everyone who knew Ahab, including his officials, his priests, and even his close friends. If that weren't bad enough, in verse 12, we're told that Jehu is on his way from Jezreel to Samaria. And as he is going, he runs into this big group of people, and he finds out that they are relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, who Jehu killed the chapter earlier. However, though, apparently that news hadn't reached them, and so they're on their way to go visit, uh, to go visit him. And as soon as Jehu learns this information, he captures them and he slaughters them. And so he kills all these people from the land of Judah. After that, in verse 18 through 27, Jehu hatches a plan to kill the prophets of Baal, which actually is something he had a divine mandate to do based on Deuteronomy 13, which talks about uh, dealing with false prophets. And so he, that story, it's amazing. He tricks them and he basically tells them, look, you thought Ahab loved Baal? Well, look, I love Baal even more. So let's have a big festival, big feast. And so he calls together all the worshipers of Baal and all the priests, and he has them go into the temple of Baal. And then he double checks that there's no worshipers of Yahweh there. And then he and about 80 other men who are stationed outside the temple immediately go in and slaughter all of them. And then he burns down the house of Baal, and then he turns its ruins into a latrine, or in other words, a public bathroom. Which you gotta hand it to him, it's pretty creative. I mean, I don't know. However, though, in the last section of chapter 10, the narrator begins to summarize Jehu's reign, and here's what it says. Verse 28. Thus, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. You see, the reality is, is that these chapters are complex. 
And they're primarily complex or complicated because Jehu was such a mixed bag. As one guy put it, Jehu was an unsanitized instrument or tool in Yahweh's hand. For example, on the one hand, he's obedient to the junior prophet's words, and he does, in fact, rid the land of Baal worship. But on the other hand, he doesn't consult Yahweh even once in any of, the, uh, in any of these chapters. And he certainly th- takes things too far, and he unjustly kills people, as Hosea 1.4 indicates. Not only is he a man of violence, though, but he also likely adds his own words and thoughts to God's word, like what we saw with some of the prophecies. And then if that weren't bad enough, as we just read, in the end, he continued to allow Israel to worship the false religion with the golden calves that Jeroboam had made up years before when the kingdoms first split. As commentator Paul House puts it, Despite his attacks against Baalism, Jehu does not lead the nation into separatist Yahwehism. He allows the worship instituted by Jeroboam to continue. Apparently, he believes that reform beyond the elimination of Ahab's children, Ahab's wife, and Ahab's religion, that is, what secures his power, does not concern him. Indeed, he acts as an instrument of punishment against the corrupt Amride dynasty, but he does not operate out of Elijah-like motives. Rather, he is like Syria, Assyria, and Babylon, an instrument that punishes but exhibits few personal moral strengths. Israel is now back to where it was before Ahab and Jezebel assumed leadership, but it certainly has not come back to the Lord. And so to close here, let me just give us now three lessons that I think these chapters teach us about the Lord. The first lesson that I think we see here is this. Yahweh sees, Yahweh remembers, and Yahweh ultimately works justice on behalf of his people. Whether we point to the Shunammite woman in chapter 8 whose land was restored, or to Jehoram dying in Naboth's vineyard, the very land his father and mother unjustly stole, or even Jezebel herself being punished for her evil deeds, including killing Yahweh's prophets, prophets and introducing Baal worship in Israel. In the end, what we see is that Yahweh sees, he remembers, and he will absolutely work justice on behalf of his people. Psalm 10:11 says this, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. However, though, in that same psalm, if you skip down to verse 14, it says, But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Now, I don't know how some of you are feeling coming off of Tuesday's election, but I think the thing that discouraged me the most was that the voting percentage broke out to what the polls are predicting will happen in November with the referendum on abortion, which if I'm being honest is just really sad to me. I think it really stinks that we live in a nation and in a state that not only has a handful of people who approve of killing innocent babies, but who the majority of people approve of it. And again, it's just discouraging, it's depressing. And so all week long, I had to keep coming back to this and reminding myself of this truth. God sees, God remembers, and God will ultimately work justice in the end. And so maybe like me, some of you need to hear that this morning. I think a second lesson about God that we see from these chapters is this. Yahweh is extremely gracious and extremely patient, but in the end, he will judge those who continue to reject him. You see, in a lot of ways, First and Second Kings highlights over and over again just how gracious and how patient God really is. Again, if you read Deuteronomy 28 and you look at the consequences Yahweh lays out for disobeying the covenant, it took hundreds and hundreds of years for Yahweh to finally punish his people and to judge them. He really is slow to anger. He really is rich in love and willing to forgive and to extend grace. I mean, even with someone like Ahab, who the Bible goes out of its way to showcase just how evil he is, When he kind of, sort of repents, God delays judgment on him. And not only that, but as we saw earlier with Elisha weeping, the Lord finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He will do it, but it breaks 
his heart. And look, I, I know some of us, we might not like this image of God as judge or a God who administers judgment, but the reality is without God's judgment, there can be no justice. God's judgment and God's justice go hand in hand. And yet, the good news for you and the good news for me this morning is that at the cross, those two things meet. And they meet in this amazing way in which you and I escape the judgment that we deserve because Christ takes it, and yet, because Christ takes it, God's justice is upheld. Which brings us to the last lesson I want to point to, and that is this. Nothing and no one can thwart Yahweh from fulfilling his plans and his purposes to his people, or his plans and his promises to his people. You see, all throughout these chapters, we see God doing what he said he would do. And even though Elijah quit and didn't do those three things God asked him to do, Yahweh still made sure they happened. Even though many years went by and Jezebel and her family continued to rule and reign and wreak havoc on the people of God, in the end, Elijah's prophecy came true. The house of Ahab was ultimately judged. And not only that, we also see in these chapters Yahweh's commitment to keep his covenant with David. For example, 2 Kings 8, 19 says, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Now, I don't want to steal too much of Chris's thunder for next week, but I'm going to steal a little bit by dipping into first, uh, 2 Kings 11. You see, right after all of this uh, that we looked at this morning, uh, Athaliah, who was the daughter of Jezebel and the mother of, of King Ahaziah, king of Judah, once she finds out that her son is dead, she goes insane. And she goes on this violent tirade and kills all her own family, including her grandsons, who would be future king of Judah, in order that she might rule and reign. And yet, as you read the story, what you find out is that this lady named Jehosheba, who you've probably never heard of, she rescues one of the royal sons named Joash. And she hides him in the house of the Lord until he gets older. And in doing so, her actions keep alive the hope for a future Messiah from David's line. In other words, this woman's heroic acts not only save Christmas, but also save our hope for salvation. And again, the point that we see here is that nothing and no one can thwart or prevent Yahweh from fulfilling his will and his covenants. He's not only faithful, but he's also powerful, and therefore he is able to fulfill all that he has promised to do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I know that there are parts of your word that are, that are hard to understand, to comprehend. Lord, we do live in such a sanitized world. We're not familiar with this kind of bloodshed and judgment and war, Lord. And yet, Lord, we recognize and we acknowledge that you are holy. As we even sang this morning, is anyone worthy? No, there was only one worthy person, and that was Jesus Christ, which is why he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, even as we come face to face with your judgment and your justice, Lord, thank you that at the cross, at the cross, Jesus took the wrath, he took the judgment that we deserved for our sin, and he died that we might live. He suffered that we might be free. And so it's him we worship this morning. It's him we proclaim. It's him we honor. Father, would you allow these things to go deep into our hearts? Lord, help us to remember these truths about who you are. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.